Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy with Part 4 of Enlightened by Love, a series by David Cayley on the thought of the French philosopher and mystic Simone Weil. God waits like a beggar for our love. The stars, the mountains, the sea, and all the things that speak to us of time convey his supplication to us. God is only the good. That is why he is waiting there in silence. Anyone who comes forward and speaks is using a little force. That which is nothing but good can only stand and wait. Imagine two people, Simone Weil writes, who have no experience or knowledge of God. One denies God's existence, one affirms it. Which is nearer to God? Ve's answer is the atheist, because he puts no false conception between himself and God. The one who believes without knowledge cuts himself off from God by creating an idol of his own imagining. How can we look for God, she asks, if we do not know what we are looking for? All we can do is refuse the name of God to whatever is not God, and then wait in patient attention for God to find us. This view of the religious life is based on Simone Weil's own experience. Born to a family of bourgeois, free-thinking Jews in Paris in 1909, she threw herself as a young woman into left-wing politics. She was involved in worker education and trade union affairs. She wrote for leftist publications and literary reviews and served with the anarchist militia during the Spanish Civil War. Then in the later 1930s, she was touched by a series of mystical experiences during which, she says, Christ took possession of her. Simone Weil died young, in exile in England during the Second World War, aged only 34. But she left behind a remarkable body of writing, most of it unpublished in her lifetime, on the religious life. In tonight's program, David Cayley looks into her account of how we know God. The name Vey, by the way, is spelt W-E-I-L, in case you've been a reader but don't recognize the French pronunciation. Enlightened by Love, Part 4, by David Cayley. Religious faith is often described as a matter of belief. Do you believe in God, we say? The assumption behind the question seems to be that knowledge of God is a combination of inspired guesswork and will. Believing in God is a decision a throw of the dice, by which we commit our limited knowledge to one side of the question or the other. This is not how Simone Weil approaches the matter. 
She thinks that trying to believe can only have bad consequences. Either God will remain an abstract and empty word, or we will label something other than God with that name. It does not rest with the soul to believe in God, she says, if God does not reveal this reality. We don't find God, in other words. God finds us. How this happens is what tonight's program is about. It begins with what she calls attention. The love of God, they says, has attention for its substance. That's what it's made of, in other words. And so, before returning to the question of faith, I want to spend a few minutes exploring what she means by attention. She means by it, first of all, a kind of alert, receptive waiting. Attention consists of suspending our thought, leaving it detached, empty, and ready to be penetrated by the object. It means holding in abeyance what we already know about this object. With respect to these already formulated thoughts, we should be like a man on a mountain who gazes into the distance and as he does so, notices without actually looking at them, the forests and plains below. Above all, our thought should be empty, waiting, not seeking anything, but ready to receive in its naked truth the object that is to penetrate it. Many errors are due to the fact that thought has seized upon some idea too hastily, and being thus prematurely blocked, is not open to the truth. The cause is always that we have wanted to be too active. We have wanted to carry out a search. We do not obtain the most precious gifts by going in search of them, but by waiting for them. Vey's idea that thought should wait on its object is striking when compared with the more aggressive posture of most modern sciences. Ever since Francis Bacon proposed to put nature on the rack, science has been about gaining access to nature and finding ways to make things yield up their secrets. Vey gives the authority and the initiative back to the world. She recalled in one of her notebooks that even as a teenage student, I'm quoting, my form of meditation consisted of contemplating an object fixedly while asking myself, what is it? without thinking of any other object or relating it with anything else for hours together. Instead of forcing the question, she thought, we have to let things disclose themselves in their own time and on their own terms. A method is necessary for the understanding of images and symbols. One should not try to interpret them, but contemplate them until their significance declares itself. One should be wary of treating the thing contemplated only as a symbol and thereby diminishing its reality. It is preferable to take the risk of taking things too literally than insufficiently so. They should first of all be taken in a purely literal fashion and contemplated thus for a considerable time. They should then be taken in a less literal fashion and contemplated thus, and so on, by degrees. One should then return to the purely literal fashion of contemplating them. Meanwhile, one should drink in the light, whatever it may be, 
springing from these several forms of contemplation. This method can be used to discriminate between what is real and what is illusory. When uncertain, shift position while going on looking. For example, go around the object, and the real will appear. In the life of the spirit, time takes the place of space. Time brings modification in us, but if we keep our gaze directed at a certain thing throughout these modifications, what is illusory is finally dissipated, and what is real appears, always provided that our attention consists of a contemplative look and not one of attachment. Attachment manufactures illusion. Anyone who wants to behold the real must be detached. The concept that she uses is attention. And attention very much involves allowing things to come forward. She uses a series of French words that mean, first of all, waiting for and displaying oneself to. They also have connotations of caring about. To be attentive is to care about the thing that you're waiting for or watching or looking at or expecting to display itself. This is Michael Ross, who's currently writing a doctoral dissertation on Simone Bay. Attention for her is this way in which consciousness allows the world to display itself. And they very much liked that idea because she was fearful of the modern predisposition to control. She very much sees control as turning into oppression. And so attention is one of the ways in which the world comes forward without our gobbling it up, without our controlling it, forcing it into, into it being what we want it to be. And methodologically, that means that the way you proceed is to be attentive to look at the manifold of some, of some problem and let its various sides come forward. And in social living, that's how you live. <laughs> you allow multiple views of the truth to come forward. And out of the deliberation that's involved, some kind of collective agreement or unity emerges. But that requires the disposition to be attentive to each other, to listen to what each has to say, to be attentive and to pay attention to the truth that's being uttered, and not to seek or force some one particular viewpoint or one particular way of practice on a social situation. And then when she turns into her religious phase, that's exactly what she, how she thinks of God. The problem with all prior religion is to try to control God. The issue, she says, in religious thought is to get out of the way. In effect, to decreate oneself so as to allow God to come forward. Rather than seeking to control God, which we in the end can't do anyway, but the effort to do it, in effect, holds God at abeyance because we're not being attentive. Attention and control are irreconcilable for they. They're opposites. Very hard to reconcile those two. Simone Weil's concept of attention, as Michael Ross says here, involves a receptive attitude to other people as much as to ideas or to things. In fact, Weil thinks that attention is in many ways the heart of charity. 
Because what those who have been hurt most need from us is recognition. In the legend of the Grail, the keeper of this miraculous vessel is a king, paralyzed by a most painful wound. And there it is said that the Grail shall belong to the first who asks this king the question, What are you going through? The love of our neighbor, in all its fullness, simply means being able to say to him, What are you going through? It is a recognition that the sufferer exists, not only as a unit in a collection, or a specimen from the social category labeled unfortunate, but as a man, exactly like us, who was one day stamped with a special mark of affliction. For this recognition to occur, it is enough, but it is indispensable to know how to look at him in a certain way. This way of looking is first of all attentive. The soul empties itself of all its own contents in order to receive into itself the being it is looking at, just as he is in all his truth. Through attention, Simon Weil says, we empty ourselves in order to receive another. Without this emptying, we are bound to reduce the other to what we think we already know, to a specimen, Weil says. And in this way, we remain locked in ourselves, unable to be surprised or to find out anything new. The world can never touch us because we are constantly domesticating and denaturing it with our preconceptions. We worship only idols, show kindness only to categories. The same strictures, according to Vey, apply to our relation with God. If we try to search for God, we will discover only what we think we're looking for. And at the outset, we can have no idea what it is we're looking for. So all we can do, she thinks, is pay attention. It is not for man to seek or even to believe in God. He is only to refuse his love to everything which is not God. This refusal does not presuppose any belief. All men know this, and more than once in their lives they recognize it for a moment, but then they immediately begin deceiving themselves again so as not to know it any longer, because they feel that if they knew it, they could not go on living. And their feeling is true, because that knowledge kills, but it inflicts a death which leads to a resurrection. She says initially we all have a need for God, but we don't have a desire for God, because we don't know God enough to desire him. So we have to come to desire God by refusing to give our love to anything that we know. This is Diogenes Allen of the Princeton Theological Seminary, who has written extensively on Vey's theology. And by that she means we must come to realize that no matter what we gain or achieve, it isn't enough to satisfy us. We've got a craving that nothing of this world can fulfill. Very old teaching. 
she refers to Plato's Gorgias, where Plato describes a human being as like a leaky vessel. A leaky vessel, no matter how much you pour into it, never gets filled because it's always draining out. She says, Plato teaches us that we are a mass of desires or a mass of loves. And we keep thinking that if we could just gratify them or enough of them, we'd finally be fulfilled. But we never are. We never are, according to both Ve and Plato, because what we long for doesn't exist in this world. What we want, Ve says, is the good. But we can only recognize that we want it when we first understand that no earthly thing can fulfill this desire. We must know that nothing that we touch, hear, or see, nothing that we visualize to ourselves, nothing that we think of is the good. If we think of God, that is not the good either. All that we conceive in the mind is imperfect as we are, and what is imperfect is not the good. The good represents for us a nothingness, since no one thing is in itself good. But this nothingness is not a non-being, not something unreal. Everything which exists is unreal compared to it. This nothingness is at least as real as we are ourselves, for our very being is nothing else than this need for the good. The good, as Simone Weil uses the term here, does not mean good in the ordinary relative sense, in which good opposes bad. It refers to an absolute good, and is therefore virtually synonymous with the word God. The good's way of existing is paradoxical, says Weil scholar Lisa McCullough of Hanover College in Indiana because it seems both to be and not to be at the same time. I'd like to quote from an interview by the New York Times magazine of Marcel Marceau, the great French mime. He was asked uh, about silence being a mime by the interviewer, and Marceau said in response, silence does not exist. Now that's a very pure answer. He's thought a lot about silence, obviously, because what we speak of as silence in everyday language is just an absence of sound or a relative absence of sound. But there's always a certain low level of sound everywhere at all times in the world. There's no such thing as true silence. Well, for Ve, thinking as purely about good and God is the good, she has to come to the conclusion God does not exist. The good does not exist. And yet, everything in the world is somehow related to the good. And her religious thought works that out. It's working out what it means that God, who is good, does not exist, whereas the world, which does exist, is not good. Pure good, according to Ve, cannot exist in the world any more than pure justice or a perfect circle. Good in the world is always shadowed by evil, because all attempts to enact good require the exertion of some force, even if only moral or psychological, and force engenders counterforce. It is simply the condition of the world's existence that motives are always mixed, 
actions always liable to miscarry and produce unforeseen and unintended consequences. God, as the good, is what is beyond this condition, according to Vey. But even though within the world the good cannot exist and remain the good, it exists within us. This is shown, says University of Toronto Vey scholar Larry Schmidt, by the fact that all of us have expectations and standards that go beyond what we have been taught or what we have experienced. We as human beings always live with the expectation that the good will be done to us. And, and we're constantly disappointed, but there is deep in our heart this feeling that, that there is a justice, that when we're mistreated, that this is not right, and it doesn't mean that we can do anything about it, etc., but we, we, we all feel that. And I think that unless we're, we're totally morally perverted or brainwashed, we also, at the other end, experience the good as something to which we're called, even when we fail to do it, when we act unjustly. We go back and we say, geez, you know, even if we get away with it, we know deep down that we're called to something different. Those two elements, both the, the feeling that we should be treated with justice and that justice requires things of us that are not simply socially determined, that it's not a matter of the law, whether you can defend what you do. We know, I think, even when we act unjustly and legally, there's a deeper reality. The good, according to Simon Weil, is what each of us expects and longs for. It is the light by which we judge our actions. But this good, she says, exists in a different way than the world exists. It can exist only outside the net of necessary conditions that make up the world. Accordingly, all we have of this good, as worldly creatures, is our desire for it. But this desire, in her view, has a curious property. Worldly desire never escapes the endless cycle of anticipation and disappointment. We cannot famously have our cake and eat it too. But desire for the good, she says, is its own fulfillment. My desire is attached to the things of this world, and I lack the energy to wrench it away. Efforts of will are illusory. If I make them, my soul disbelieves me. All I can do is to desire the good. But whereas all other desires are sometimes effective and sometimes not, according to circumstances, this one desire is always effective. The desire for gold is not the same thing as gold. The desire for good is itself a good. The desire for good, Simon Weil says, is of a different kind than all other desires. Its special character consists in having no object, in being a journey, not a destination. And this character has long been recognized within mystical Christianity, says Father Lawrence Freeman, a Benedictine monk 
and a teacher to the world community for Christian meditation. I think there she's part of the, the Christian mystical tradition, which speaks about the desire for God as the desire which consumes all other desires. So it isn't, we can never, just as St. Irenaeus said, we can never know God as an object. Uh, we can only know God by sharing in God's own self-knowledge. So I think Simone Weil says, uh, in the same spirit, in the same tradition, we, we don't desire God as an object, just as we, as, as we might desire a success in our career or recognition or material or sensory satisfaction. The desire for the good is uh, in a different category altogether. And that is a desire that we need to discover within ourselves. It's, it's, it's inherent in us, I think, in her view. But we have to dig deep through all our other egotistical daydreaming and desires in order to uncover it and release it and then live by it and then make this the, uh, the guiding light of our uh, moral and spiritual lives, this desire for the good. It is in the power and fixity of our desire that we should become like children. A child stretches out his hands and his whole body towards a bright object, even if it is the moon. If a child is hungry, he cries with his whole body, tirelessly, to be given milk or bread. A child does not will to obtain the bright object or the milk. He makes no plans for getting them. He simply desires and cries. The will and the intelligence which makes plans are adult faculties. We must use them up. We must destroy them by wearing them out. It is of little importance whether we possess a large or small share of those faculties. What matters is that we should persevere to the end and use them up completely. The intelligence can be destroyed by the contemplation of clear and inescapable contradictions. The will can be destroyed in the accomplishment of impossible tasks, like the superhuman trials in folk tales. Using up our faculties of intelligence and will means, for Ve, pushing them to their limit. This means pushing them to the point at which it becomes clear that we cannot possess the good by our own devices. Only then, she says, will we realize that our desire for good is our only hope. Those who seek God, says Simone Weil, have to learn to desire without an object, because God cannot be an object. As an object, he is immediately an idol of the imagination, and therefore not God. It is this idol that Buddhists refer to when they talk of killing the Buddha, and that medieval German mystic Meister Eckhart intends when he speaks of killing God. We cannot look for God, Fay says, because what we are looking for is what is looking. The great difficulty in seeking for God is that we have him within us, at the center of ourselves. 
how can I approach myself? Every step I take leads me away from myself. That is why we cannot search for God. The only way is to come out of oneself and contemplate oneself from outside. Then, from outside, one sees, at the center of oneself, God as he is. But coming out of oneself means total renunciation of being anybody and a complete consent to being merely a thing. One cannot come out of oneself by willing to do so. The harder one wills, the more one is oneself. The will, according to Vey, defeats its own purpose. The will to come out of oneself inevitably reinforces that very self. This effect can only be avoided, she thinks, by waiting on God and refusing ultimate allegiance to anything else. Until God has taken possession of him, no human being can have faith, but only simple belief. And it hardly matters whether or not he has such a belief, because he will arrive at faith equally well by not believing. The only choice before man is whether he will or will not attach his love to this world. Let him refuse to attach it. Let him stay motionless, without searching, waiting in immobility and without even trying to know what he awaits. And it is absolutely certain that God will come all the way to him. To search is to impede rather than to facilitate God's operation. How could we search for God, since he is above, in a dimension not open to us? We can only advance horizontally. And if we advance in this way, seeking our good, and the search succeeds, the result will be illusory, and what we have found will not be God. A little child who suddenly perceives that he has lost his mother in the street runs about in all directions crying, but he is wrong. If he had the sense and courage to stay where he is and wait, she would find him sooner. We cannot search for God because he does not exist in the worldly or horizontal dimension, as she says, in which we try to look for him. As a result, says Diogenes Allen, what is called God is very often just a disguise for our own conceits. We're always seeking to gratify earthly desires by using God to satisfy those earthly desires. We haven't yet developed a desire for what God actually is. I'll give you an example. This happens a lot in evangelical circles, elsewhere too, but in this form. I'm going to stick with Jesus because he's going to win and I want to be on the winning side. That's not a desire for God, you see. Or, you know, if you pray enough, these things will all work out for you. That's a half-truth. The half that isn't true is, I want things to work out for me the way I want them to work out, not in terms of what God wants for me in life. So we're constantly using God as a means to our ends. 
That has to be broken. One of the biggest problems in religion, all religions, is that struggle. The message, the teaching, the life are constantly distorted because a person hasn't reoriented themselves or repented. They haven't changed their direction. This change of direction is not an event that can occur once and for all. That's exactly the difficulty with the kind of are you saved or aren't you Christianity that Diogenes Allen is criticizing here. According to Father Lawrence Freeman, the desire for God demands continuous correction. It has to be uh, purified endlessly because we are constantly creating an image of that desire and that image naturally becomes a substitute for the reality of God. And this is the this for her is the I suppose the tragic dimension of life that we have that the ascetical path uh, is continuous. One of the Desert Fathers, one of the early Christian monks in the fourth century, said that the spiritual struggle goes on every day until the end of one's life, because the uh, there is constantly this tendency to create God in our own image or to reduce the desire for the good to a desire for a good which will satisfy us in the short term. Like the desert monk, Lawrence Freeman quotes, Simon Weil believed an incessant struggle was necessary to keep from worshiping gods of our own imagination. The imagination, she wrote, is continually at work, filling up the cracks through which grace might pass. But if we can wait without accepting any substitute, she thought, then God will surely find us. Over the infinity of space and time, the love of God comes to possess us. He comes at his own time. We have the power to consent to receive him or to refuse. If we remain deaf, he comes back again and again like a beggar. But also like a beggar, one day he stops coming. If we consent, God places a little seed in us and he goes away again. From that moment, God has no more to do. Neither have we, except to wait. If you withhold yourself, there is an opening for God to get in. It's just enough of an opening for him to drop a seed, as he puts it, the seed of his kingdom. This is Diogenes Allen. Now, the problem is the seed's very small and the chasm is very large. And at first you don't even know it's there. You don't feel it. And there's a danger, she says, of spitting it out again, i.e. returning to the things of this world for fullness. But if you continue to withhold your love from all things as able to give you the fullness you seek, that seed can start growing. That's what waiting for God is in part, for the seed to grow. And as it grows, after a while you're going to start feeling the presence of a love you've never known before. And you're able to respond with love to things outside of you that you never responded to with love before, such as the suffering of people, such as the beauty of the world, such as the beauty of the gospel story, such as things that happen in worship, 
Now your heart goes out to them because God has put his love into you. The image of God's love as a seed is one to which Simone Weil returns again and again. She thinks of the mustard seed, which Jesus compares to the kingdom of heaven, because it is the tiniest of seeds and yet produces a great plant. Or of the Greek myth of Persephone, who is bound to remain half the year in the underworld because she has eaten a single pomegranate seed, which the god of the underworld has given her. This image of the seed has a double significance for Ve. It signifies the potential for growth, but it also suggests, by its smallness, how negligible the presence of the good is in this world. God, as the good, exerts no coercive power. And yet, as in Archimedes' saying that with the right point of leverage he could lift the world, the action of what is small, secret, and easily overlooked can sometimes prove decisive. For God to plant his seed in us, there has to be an opening, Simone Weil says. This opening occurs when we recognize that our situation is not what it appears to be. Creation, for Weil, is an abdication. God withdraws in order to let his creatures be. But it then appears to these creatures that they possess their own being, their own will, their own world. This illusion, for Weil, constitutes our fall, our original sin, says Eric Springstead, the president of the American Simone Weil Society. Our task is to overcome the illusion, he says. But first, we have to recognize our situation. Human beings are given this space, and that creates a certain sort of anxiety. Uh, death is imminent. They also think that they have the power to take charge of things and even defeat their destiny, which ultimately means the denial of God, partly because they just simply, they told themselves a lie about how things really go. They put themselves at the center of the world. And in fact, there's a wonderful analogy here that she uses. When you go outside on a clear day, you look up and the sky looks like a bowl that's inverted over you, and the center of that bowl is directly above you. Now, you can go down the road a mile, and it looks like the center is still directly above you, and it's just an optical illusion. And she said, you know, morally, we often see ourselves as the center of the universe. You know, whatever is closest to us is what's most important. You know, our families, our friends, and then you know, people in China are, we don't think that much about them because they're, they're just really very distant. She said, now that's, that's just a natural illusion. There's no problem with that by itself. The problem is when we believe that we're the center of the world and act as if we are. And in that sense, there is original sin because we do act on it. And she thinks that there, there are consequences, that we become something because of those choices. We tell ourselves that lie, or we believe that lie that we're the center of the world. We believe that illusion, uh, and it becomes a lie when we act on it. And then we start 
doing everything on the basis of that lie. So yeah, there is a fall, and it has, it has real consequences. Each man imagines he is situated in the center of the world. An illusion of the same kind falsifies his idea of time. Yet another illusion arranges a whole hierarchy of values around him. We live in a world of unreality and dreams. To give up our imaginary position as the center, to renounce it, not only intellectually, but in the imaginative part of the soul. That means to awaken to what is real and eternal, to see the true light and hear the true silence. A transformation then takes place at the very roots of our sensibility, in our immediate reception of sense impressions. It is a transformation analogous to that which takes place in the dusk of evening on a road, where we suddenly discern as a tree what we had at first seen as a stooping man, or where we suddenly recognize as the rustling of leaves what we had thought at first was whispering voices. We see the same colors, we hear the same sounds, but not in the same way. This changed point of view is available, Faye says, when we give up the illusion of our own centrality. We exist, according to her, because God has sacrificed his completeness and unity in order to let something other than himself be. That's how she conceives creation, not as an expansion of God's power, but as a contraction of it. God, out of love, withholds himself, giving us space and time in which to exist. This allows us the illusion of an independent will, the choice before us, Faye thinks, is whether we will embrace this illusion or give up our egocentrism, what she calls here the individual I. God, considered as the one and unique I am, does not enter into man. Nor is it given to man to embrace God, considered as an object of love. But by means of the disappearance of the individual I, the love of God can pass through the soul of a man like the light through a piece of glass. That is what is meant by the presence of the Holy Spirit to the soul. It lies within our power to be mediators between God and that part of creation which has been entrusted to us. Our consent is necessary in order that through the medium of ourselves, God may be able to perceive his own creation. It would only be necessary for me to withdraw myself from my own soul, for this table that is in front of me to have the incomparable good fortune of being seen by God. In creating us, God withdraws in order to let us be by withdrawing in order to let him pass, we do the same. God is like a father who gives his child the wherewithal to enable the child to give his father a present on his birthday. God, out of love, withdraws from us so that we can love him. For if we were exposed to the direct radiance of his love, 
without the protection of space, of time, and of matter. We should be evaporated like water in the sun. There would not be enough I in us to make it possible to love, to surrender the I for love's sake. Necessity is the screen placed between God and us so that we can be. It is for us to pierce through the screen so that we cease to be. We shall never pierce through it if we do not understand that God lies beyond at an infinite distance and that good lies in God alone. To see things as they are, Simon Weil says, we first have to get ourselves out of the way. The great obstacle to our doing this, she thinks, is imagination. This is a word which today is usually glorified because of its association with romantic notions of art, creativity, and self-expression. So I should say that Weil, though definitely anti-romantic, is not attacking art. She loved many works of literature, of painting, and of music, and believed that all these arts could sometimes be truthful. She uses the word imagination to signify fantasy, illusion, self-deception, and lying. She says that justice, for example, is always contaminated by imagination. It's contaminated by the image we would like to have of ourselves as just, and by the image we would like others to have of us as just. Such images become substitute motives. The desire for justice is displaced by the desire to appear just. That is why, for her, justice is best exemplified by the crucified Christ. In order to be just, one must be naked and dead, without imagination. That is why the ideal of justice has to be naked and dead. The cross alone is not exposed to an imaginary imitation. It is very much easier to place oneself in imagination in the position of God the Creator than in that of Christ crucified. Christ on the cross exemplifies justice because there is nothing in his situation to which the imagination can attach itself. He is, to all eyes, a contemptible criminal, abandoned by his followers because they cannot recognize their former leader in this outcast, and powerless even to save himself. Nailed there, he can do nothing for us, and we can gain nothing by acknowledging him. And it is precisely in this condition of perfect wretchedness that we should love him and recognize him as the truth, Vey says. This love, in her view, is what constitutes the resurrection. Christ revives as a living presence only through our love for him when he is naked and dead. But what had happened within historical Christianity, she thought, was that imagination had tended to denature the crucifixion, reducing it to a mere prologue to the power and glory to come. And when this imaginary meaning prevails, Diogenes Allen says, resurrection is transformed from a recognition of death 
into its denial. There's a woman I know who is extremely well off and lives in a well-off way. And uh, she's absolutely convinced in the resurrection. And from what I can tell, dealing with her is what she expects to do, is to continue to be well off forever. Now, for me, that is not a belief in the resurrection. That's a belief in, I'm going to survive and be all right. Resurrection of, of the dead is that God redeems us from sin, our evil, and indeed our destruction. And to be redeemed from those, you have to recognize them. You have to reach the point where God is my helper, and that's the only helper I've got. Until you reach that point, I don't know if you can receive, even know what the resurrection means. You haven't got a glimmer as to the reality of, of, of a reconstitution. So resurrection is bought only through tears, only through loss. One thing remains to be said. Tonight's program has been mainly concerned with the soul. But the soul, for Vey, is always an embodied reality. The body, she says, is the only way in which the soul can act on the soul. Nothing enters existence except through the body. She talks about the relation between body and spirit in a passage from one of her notebooks, with which I'll conclude. She's discussing the Christian gospel, and she says that everything in it ultimately pertains to how we should live in the world. The gospel contains a conception of human life, not a theology. If I light an electric torch at night out of doors, I don't judge its power by looking at the bulb but by seeing how many objects it lights up. The brightness of a source of light is appreciated by the illumination it projects upon non-luminous objects. The value of a religious, or more generally, a spiritual way of life is appreciated by the amount of illumination thrown upon the things of this world. Earthly things are the criterion of spiritual things. This is what we generally don't want to recognize, because we are frightened of a criterion. The virtue of anything is manifested outside the thing. If, on the pretext that only spiritual things are of value, we refuse to take the light thrown on earthly things as a criterion. We are in danger of having a non-existent treasure. Only spiritual things are of value, but only physical things have a verifiable existence. Therefore, the value of the former can only be verified as an illumination projected onto the latter.
A victim of misfortune is lying in the road, half dead of hunger. God pities him, but cannot send him bread. But I am here, and luckily I am not God. I can give him a piece of bread. It is my one point of superiority over God. I was hungry and you fed me. God can beg for bread for the afflicted, but he cannot give it to them. On Ideas, you've listened to part four of Enlightened by Love, The Thought of Simone Weil. The series concludes tomorrow night with a program on Simone Weil's critique of institutional Christianity and her understanding of the proper place of religion in society. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley with the assistance of Linda Shorten and Dave Field. Readings from Simone Weil's writings were by Kate Cayley. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy.